Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Drive Into the Basket, part of the Basketball Podcast Network. I am Mike, joined today by the two co-hosts of the new Bad Boys and Beyond podcast, podcast for all of your Pistons history. I'm with Mike Payton and Keith Trudeau. Fellas, thanks for joining the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so uh, why don't you uh, tell the listeners what your show is going to be about? Uh, so, you know, Keith and I are, are basketball nerds. Uh, we, we've been watching basketball our entire life. It's our first love. And we know things like that people probably shouldn't know, like who's Tony Massenberg and stuff like that. So we, we decided we were going to get together and we were going to start talking about the Detroit Pistons and some uh, NBA history as well. The uh, crux of what we do is every other week we cover a certain Detroit Piston. We do it long form. We go through their entire career. Uh, the highs, the lows, um, maybe drop a little uh, uh, history that you may not remember. So, uh, for example, in our first episode, Isaiah Thomas uh, may have almost gotten traded to the Knicks in his last year. So we drop little stuff like that that you probably forgot about. And uh, and then in our opposite episodes, we talk we talk about NBA history. Last week, we did the uh, a redraft of the 1984 NBA draft. That's the Michael Jordan year. Uh, we did that uh, in full, gave some analysis, talked about um, how these how those players would fit with uh, the team that were uh, that the the uh, that were currently being on the court. Um, so yeah, you know we we, we love history and and we're going to talk about it for a long time. And uh, this this coming week we got Lindsey Hunter coming up, and I'm looking forward to seeing where this thing's going to go. Fantastic, yeah, me too. Let's talk some Pistons history. Where would you each say that that your Pistons fandom began? Myself, uh, my fandom really as a, as a Pistons fan. And I, I tell people that when people ask me what my first Pistons game was, I tell them it's the bird steel game. Now I was five. I have no way of actually remembering if that's what it was, but I remember distinctly the, the parquet floor of the Boston garden. I remember it was an exciting game. I remember there was, there was a lot of reactions. I, it probably was the bird steel game, but I'm not a hundred percent sure of that. But that, anyway, as a very uh, young kid, I, I, I was just thrilled with the Pistons. Cause I, I grew up in a world where, and people are going to find this hard to believe that, you know, the Pistons were world champions. Like they were at the top of the NBA for years and I didn't know any other, uh, any other league. So as I got older and the bad boys uh, started uh, aging out, um, you know, I was old enough to finally, you know, understand what was going on in the court. And even though that the Pistons were no longer nearly as relevant, I found myself, you know, very interested in, you know, the game, learning the game and studying things that were happening around the league and why they were happening. And from that point on, really from the age of probably 10 or 11, I, I really became a historian, uh, someone that, you know, studies the game. And, you know, for the last, you know, 25, 30, that, that's kind of been my passion. My, my side hobby in life is, you know, learning as much as I can. And, you know, to this day, I'm still learning stuff. Um, over the years, I've collected, you know, a very large um, collection of uh, old basketball games. I've, I've digitized it. I've long since digitized it all. But don't get this image that there's, you know, a, a room full of VHS uh, tapes in my attic. <laughs> there's not. But, um, yeah, I, I do have to get a new hard drive, though. I filled up about 12 terabytes worth if that, you know, wow. gives anyone some kind of a scope. Yeah, you uh, post a but, lot of clips on Twitter of these yeah. old games. Yep, yep. That, that's, 
honestly how this whole thing got started is, you know, on a Twitter, I, I had a Twitter account, which I started just, you know, to aggregate um, information about the team. And I, I, I never thought about putting stuff out there myself, but, you know, I, I put out a few clips here and there and it got such a great response. I said, okay, what's the, I can put out a whole two plus minute, you know, highlight clip of something that happened that people probably either haven't seen before or don't remember. And the whole uh, Twitter thing kind of took off for me. And then when Mike came to me with this idea for our podcast, I was honestly quite thrilled about it because it got to, I still got to be a Pistons fan, which I still am to this day. You know, we will be talking about a, a different Pistons legend or a Pistons related legend, you know, every other week. But it also got to, it, it allowed me to talk about other stuff like our, um, the redraft that we just did, which I, I, mm -hmm. I, I was honestly unsure about how it was going to go before, but having done it, taking the, you know, as I, as I phrased it, the quantum leap approach, not just taking the first 14, you know, your, your 14 best players in a redraft, but actually trying to make the right pick for each team that was drafting. I, I thought mm. that was, I thought that was really cool and I can't wait to do more of these. And I'm thrilled to share all of this with everybody, you know, as our podcast grows and we get more people listening. Fantastic. You know, for me, uh, it, it really starts with, I have ADHD. Uh, so it's, it's hard for me to focus on things. So when I find something that I can focus on, I, I do what's called hyper-focusing, which is kind of like a big, um, a part of being ADHD, people hyper-focus. So early on, like I always knew what the Pistons were in my early life. You know, I, I had the the old remember Keith those old T-shirts of the uh, the cartoon Pistons like after they had won the championship they're on the, the, like the, yeah like the little caricatures yeah you know, so I had those shirts and but like I was I didn't really pay much attention to they were just a team you know they were just they were just yeah. a sports team and then in 1992 we went and seen uh, my uncle Jim took me to my first Pistons game it was Pistons versus the the uh, uh, the Pacers and I just fell in love immediately and. You know, we got this little uh, they were giving away these Joe Dumars jerseys at the door with like and they had like a, a bunch of sponsors and stuff on them. They weren't real Joe Dumars jerseys, but I wore that thing out. I wore it all the time. And then he gave me this 1988 uh, Detroit Pistons year end review uh, cassette tape. And I watched that thing over and over and over and over and over again. And then I started collecting basketball cards and I would just sit and read them, read the back of them. Like I've just, it, it was like insane. The, the hyper-focus that I was able to do, and it was all Pistons led, um, you know, and I would do the thing that most people would do. I'd go out into the driveway and pretend to be Grant Hill or pretend to be Isaiah Thomas or, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and that love just, it just kept growing and growing and growing. And, and here I am, I'm 36 years old and I, I don't miss a game. Uh, I love this team. I always will. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. You, the fandom of each of you guys antedates mine by a couple of decades. Like I was around for the going to work days. I wasn't, I would imagine back then anywhere near as, as hardcore fan as, as the two of you were. And then I, I was largely during that time, just a very hardcore Rebbings fan. I got alienated by Ken Holland, and then the, that magical month or so after Josh Smith was waived came along, I started watching the Pistons, and 
yeah, ultimately moved on to uh, to, to the Pistons and my hardcore fandom, uh, a team that was actually even more poorly managed than the Red Wings back then. So, yeah, it's only about eight years for me. Uh, so it seems like you guys really grew up watching into, you know, just the post, the immediate post Bad Boys era and uh, and into the Teal era. Yeah, which which seems to be a pretty forgotten era in, in Pistons history. I, I'm sure Mike, uh, Mike Payton is going to chime in and say something similar. But, you know, your formative years are kind of, you know, the years that you have some of your sharpest memories, because those are the things that are just like ingrained in you. And that's to me, that's even though my first memories are for you know, of the bad boys. That's where I started. Like my most vivid memories are from the mid nineties to late nineties. Um, like w- w- as the bad boys were getting torn down and then Grant Hill and Lindsay Hunter and Alan Houston were walking, uh, in through that door, you know, and in a couple years later, they transitioned to the teal, which that, that, that's a whole thing that people that resonates with people, whether they've even seen it, whether they've even been around for it or not. Uh, but yeah, those, uh, like the 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 disaster that was the first you know six or seven years of the Tom Gores era following um, Bill Davidson's passing those those yeah. years are kind of I mean I I could probably give you some details about each season but those are just one big pile of uh, crap for me like they, they they kind of all um, uh, gel together but yeah. I could give you breakdowns of how the team was different between 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. Like these, those are all like individual, like mini movies for me. Like each team was, was very distinct in at least one different way because they, especially when Grant Hill came aboard, they tried to reinvent themselves like in a hurry to get good every single year. And that, that that's one of the, maybe the most interesting time uh, in Pistons history for me, uh, even though it wasn't the most successful. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of echo what Keith is saying, I, it's like, it's like a movie that plays in my head. You know, I I remember, especially that '97 season that they they were 54 and 28. Yeah, they went to the playoffs. They were like, you know, a really good team. Obviously, the Bulls were unbeatable at that time. But, but I, you know, you, I just remember tuning in to the games and and the opening package and and you know the they were destroying the other team's logo and and all that stuff in like a cartoon type thing. And you got George Blaha and Kelly Trapuca calling the games. And it's just, I remember vividly, like after the Jerry Stackhouse trade, watching Jerry Stackhouse and Aaron McKee get off the plane and thinking like, we're going to win it all. Like this is the greatest time (laughs) of my life. And uh, it's just, uh, you know, you just remember stuff like that. It just never goes away. Mm hmm. Yes, I mean, you guys were around through a lot of years that I feel like, like the Teal years and certainly uh, almost the 90s, 90s as a whole after the Pistons, really after the, after the Bulls took over, seemed like kind of a lost era for the Pistons because after that, you know, in Pistons history rather, because after that you saw the transition, you know, starting, you know, around 2001, if I remember correctly, to the going to work era. So, yeah, what were really the defining, as a, defining characteristics of, of, of the 90s of that Teal era for you guys? Um, there is a... Jersey and it starts with numbers 33. Um, yeah, that he was important. He, he, even though Grant Hill came aboard a couple years prior and he left a year before the Teal era, and Grant Grant Hill, if you bring up the the Teal era to anybody that was around at that time, they're they're going to say the first name that comes to mind is going to be Grant Hill. Uh, Grant Hill, and I, I've said this before, but he is the still the greatest forward ever to wear a Pistons jersey. 
Now, you, you can throw his uh, overall team record in my face all you want, but all that says to me is that, you know, he didn't play with as much talent around him as guys like Mark Aguirre, Adrian Dantley, or Tayshaun Prince, or Rasheed Wallace. Uh, and in some ways, he was kind of a blessing and a curse because, you know, pe- people forget, like, they were only in the lottery for, this only their, this was only their very first attempt at tanking. Um, like, they were in the lottery previously, but they, they were trying to make the playoffs. They just missed it. And then in year two, um, the whole thing just went to hell, and they decided we're going to bottom out. And they did. I think they lost their last something like their last 11, 12 games of the season. And they didn't land. They had the second worst record. They actually dropped one spot. They, they landed the third uh, pick, but in, in a way that I think is analogous to what happened this past year with um, uh, us land with the Pistons landing fifth. Uh, but somehow Jaden Ivey drops to them in a way. It was something very similar to where the Pistons actually dropped to third in the lottery, but the best player in the draft fell to them anyway. And Grant Hill was so good right out of the box that you could almost feel the pressure coming from the front office that we, all right, this is, this kid is going to be one of the top players in the entire league. A lot of people were anointing him as the successor to Michael Jordan. I mean, this isn't hyperbole. This isn't, no, this was actually going on at the time. Like he wasn't just a young star. He was like the young star of the league. They wanted him to be that guy. And for the front office, it was just unacceptable for them to be, you know, mediocre. They, they were, obsessed with taking advantage of having this immense talent that just fell in their lap immediately, you know? So, and I'll, I'll give you a quick uh, rundown of how his career went out um, or how, how his career played out in Detroit. So, you know, 94, 95, uh, they had a bad season again, even though he was very clearly the best rookie, Jason Kidd made a little push at the end that they, they gave him a, a sympathy tie for rookie of the year, but really Grant Hill was the best rookie. Right. And after the season was over, they fired both the coach and the GM, uh, hired Doug Collins and gave him what everyone uh, younger today would know as the Stan Van Gundy role, coach and GM. Ah. And yep. And Doug, Doug Collins, brilliant, brilliant coach. Uh, one of the yeah, he smartest. Was, ever, I'm sorry. Go he on. was Jordan's first coach, right? Before Phil Jackson. He was, he was, uh, Jordan's, he was Jordan's second coach. Um, okay. Yeah. He was his, his original coach and his name is just, Slip in my mind right now. Uh, I'm sure I'll think it up in a minute. But anyway, yeah, he was he was the first coach that that Jordan had a real you know rapport with that they won his playoff series with, and he was every bit as maniacal and as obsessed uh, with winning and losing as Jordan was. And I, I don't want to say that Doug Collins was cold or cruel, but he was just so single minded in his. All right, I'll give you an example. Uh, Theo Ratliff, uh, one of the Pistons draft picks in the mid nineties. I used to think that the Pistons would run a play called Theo because every time down the court, Doug Collins would be shouting Theo and it, it, it would, no, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not even exaggerating. This isn't that I literally thought that they had a play called Theo because he was yelling at him probably two out of every three times down the court. And it, it, it as smart as Doug Collins was, it just graded on people. And the person that probably cost them uh, initially, the first casualty, the first casualty of that was Allen Houston. Uh, after the very fir- Doug's very first season in Detroit, Allen Houston 
Uh, he wasn't playing very much early. Uh, Doug Collins didn't like his defense. Uh, Doug Collins didn't like this about him, that about him. But by the end of the season, uh, he had grown to the point where people were, in Detroit at least locally, were discussing, okay, who's, who's the real alpha dog of our team? Is it Grant Hill or is it Allen Houston? Like, it sounds ridiculous mm. today, but I'm just saying that playoff series that they had against Orlando, Allen Houston was probably the best piston on the court. And it was just a bone crusher uh, when he left, you know, immediately after free agency. Now, the front office had a lot to do with that. And if I go into the disaster that was the offseason of 1996, we'll be here all night. So I'm just going to say that the front office fumbled the bag in the summer of 96 worse than I think the Pistons had ever fumbled it in any year ever. It was one of the biggest debacles, I think, for a team mm-hmm. to have a heavy potential. Because that team really, if you look at the roster and the money that they were about to have, that team really had the potential to be a contender. It really did. And that was the one time in Grand Hill's career where they had a window. And as soon as Allen Houston left, that window closed. And they didn't replace him with anybody because everyone saw Allen Houston leave and they said, oh, God, Grant Hill's there and they still have guys, you know, running for the exit. What's going on? And, yep. And so Doug Collins, he lasts another year and a half, uh, does a great coaching job. Like like Peyton said, uh, they won 54 games with basically Grant Hill and a very old Joe Dumars, well, by NBA standards, old Joe Dumars, you know, and a bunch of guys. And it was it was masked by the fact that Doug was slowly wearing them down uh, with his wow. uh, his his overbearing coaching style, and they should have fired him anyway after that fifty four win season. They didn't, and because of that, they went into the next season. They missed the playoffs. Doug was fired two months into that season, replaced with Alvin Gentry, replaced uh, as a GM, I think, with Rick Sund, who. Again, we'll we'll go into him in a minute. So that see that season ninety eight season was a wash. And now you've got two more years left until Grand Hill's uh, rookie season runs out. So ninety nine right. comes along, and they have again this amount of cap space that they should have paid Allen Houston, but they didn't. So and and like Payton said, they 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 did trade for Jerry Stackhouse midway through that lost season. So you know there was some hope there that they could rebuild. And they, they gave that extra money to uh, Brian Williams, who most people would know uh, as the uh, tragic story of Bison Daly. Bison very, Daly. Yep. Very <laughs> talented center. I I put out a video of him uh, a while ago that I, I retweet every now and then. Bison Daly was not a, a bad player. If, like, if you look at the sheer talent that he had and what he could do on a basketball floor, he was well worth the money. But there, if you look at the amount of teams that he bounced to from team to team to team, uh, over his career prior to that point, you could see like, okay, there's something else going on here because it's definitely not the fact that he can't play. And Bison, uh, I, I want to say this gently because, you know, he's passed away. I, I don't want to. That's a sad story. Yeah, yeah, it is. But it's in terms of story. a basketball player, it was very similar to Andre Drummond, but worse. Where okay. he, some, some, some nights uh, he would show up and he would dominate and even against good players where he would just be, oh, my God, this guy's lights out. And then the next three nights he would show up and he would he would look like a guy that didn't even – that had to be forced into a uniform. Like he would commit mm-hmm. early fouls, like lazy fouls, and then he would sit down and then he'd come in the second quarter, commit another foul, and at the end of the game he'd have four fouls and uh, three points and one rebound in 25 minutes. Right. And, and those games were frequent with him. 
And you also had a developing problem, uh, which again, I, I won't take up too much of your time with, but uh, Joe Dumars at that point was clearly the GM in waiting. And he was still playing, right? He was still on the yeah, roster, yeah, wasn't he? Was that yeah. was his last season, that, that 99 season, that lockout shortened season. And mm-hmm. he created kind of a, a power dynamic where Al, he, he had no business starting for that team. He didn't. Right. Um, Jerry Stackhouse, this young, uh, again, he, he, he had kind of a rocky start to his career, but still everybody saw the talent. They just, he just needed minutes and he was the perfect, um, running mate alongside Grant Hill to get up and down and, uh, put pressure on teams in transition. And Jerry Stackhouse was kind of a six man, you know, right. and, and he shouldn't have been cause he was better than Joe. <clears throat> Joe Dumars could still shoot, but he really wasn't capable of doing anything else at that point. He couldn't defend. He couldn't handle the ball like he used to. He was a guy. He was a spot up shooter and a guy that could pass a little bit. He was about thirty five at the time, right? Yeah. And what yes. happened was, uh, I, I don't think that there was any chance that he would have started if Alvin Gentry didn't know that he was going to be working for him in a year. So oh, interesting. Yes. Yeah, so it created this weird dynamic where Joe was Joe was starting and playing. He was happy. Jerry Stackhouse was clearly unhappy. He did not have a very good season coming off the bench. And everyone was kind of just waiting for that year to be over, which was, which was such a uh, disappointment uh, because uh, that was the year that you know the Miami Heat got knocked out in the first round uh, as the eight as the number one seed, mm-hmm. and that that team, if you look at that that weird lockout shortened season, they could have had a path to the finals, and they they really did didn't in the end because they got knocked out of the first round uh, by Atlanta, a team with a head a lot less talent than they did. Yeah. And, and yeah. And that and, was, and, and, yep. And that was in, yeah. So Alvin Gentry gets fired. The, the, you, you're seeing a theme here. Alvin Gentry gets fired uh, shortly into the next season. <clears throat> and this is Grant Hill's last season, right? So. And this is pretty much it for the, for that, for that era of the Pistons, huh? Like yep. Your, yep. And then yeah. Alvin, yep. And then George Irving takes over and then, it looks like they may have something going and then Grant Hill's uh, injury problems happen. And, you know, the, the doctors just fumbled it. They misdiagnosed it and he played on and it probably cost him several years out of his career. And, you know, it, at that point, everything just kind of fell apart and Joe Dumars decided to pretty much wipe the, uh, just burn it all down and start from the beginning. Gotcha. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean that's uh, you've just told me a great deal more than I than I ever knew about that era of Pistons basketball. And now a quick word from our sponsor. The action never ends at DraftKings Sportsbook, especially this summer with tons of ways to bet on all your favorite sports. You can feel your fandom and feel the heat of the season like never before. Plus, right now DraftKings Sportsbook is giving new customers a risk-free bet of up to one thousand dollars. That's right, make your first bet up to one thousand dollars, and if it doesn't win, you'll get another shot to cash in. You can throw it on in all the major action for baseball, golf, MMA, and more. Plus, with same-game parlays, spreads, money lines, over/unders, and props, your betting options feel endless. For example, you can bet on NBA Summer League, which is currently ongoing. Best of all, DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Make your first deposit and get a risk-free bet up to $1,000. That's promo code TBPN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Now, now something I think uh, that Grant Hill, I, I agree with what you said, based on what I know about him, bro, at this point has, has, has the best pedigree of any, any forward ever to put on Pistons uniform. I agree with that. But despite that, people don't, 
really know, I, I think myself included, and a lot of a lot of Pistons fans who who may not have been watching back then or maybe young back then don't know a ton about him. So uh, yeah, uh, Mike, how would you sum up Grant Hill? Like uh, you know, for the for the Pistons fans of today who aren't quite as familiar with him. Yeah, I mean, it's it's exactly what what Keith was saying. Like he, people really don't think about uh, about it because of the way his career ended, you know, with the, in the injuries and 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 uh, and things like that. But he really was compared to Michael Jordan. He was expected to be the league's next uh, number one guy, and and for a while there, I mean, he really stepped up to it, and you could actually see that that was something that could potentially happen. But you know, it. it his teams just never figured it out. And it's weird because when you look back, if you're somebody who, who knows anything about the, the NBA in the nineties and you don't know who's on what teams, but you know, what players are, are good. And, and, and you look at some of the players that Grant Hill played with, like the Allen Houston's, the Jerry Stackhouse, Joe Dumars, Christian Laettner, uh, Stacy Ogman, Rick Mahorn, Joe Dumar. I, I probably said Dumars already, but like, it's, it's, it's crazy to think yeah. that, that this guy never, never won a championship. Uh, and, and it's just weird to think that this team never put it together, but that's, that's what the nineties Pistons were. They were the team full of talent that just couldn't put it together. And they were somewhat similar to the, you know, the late uh, 2010s uh, early or, you know, the late 2010, mid to 20, late 2010s Pistons where they had guys like Chris Middleton and, and, uh, you know, and just didn't know what to do with them. And like, and, and they wind up trading them away and, and they go on to be bigger stars. You know, Alan Houston leaves Detroit. He's a much bigger star in New York and, and, uh, you know, Stackhouse, you know, probably had his best days in, as a Piston, but once he left, he, you know, he became kind of a, you know, a, a better player a little bit. Uh, and it just kind of goes on. Lindsey Hunter, he goes, he, he leaves to go to LA. He has more success there. And it just, that's just what it was. It was the Pistons were like, this team just couldn't put it together. And if as soon as you left the Pistons in that era, you were probably destined to be a bigger star. Yeah, it was just, I, I guess the one thing that I would, because the team in the late 2010 didn't have, they had talent, but they didn't have, you know, like the Grant Hill. You know, to mm-hmm. right. to get right. everybody fit, to get it like I there was a lot of hopelessness in those early twenty ten years because they spent a lot of money and they didn't the guys that they spent a lot of money on turned out to be you know highly unproductive. Like it wasn't just the fact that they spent the money on on those guys. If they had gotten the version of those guys that were that 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 came from the other teams, they would have been you know still not good, but it would have been at least understandable. But the the versions that they got were like Charlie Villanueva. As, as hard as it is to believe, might have been the most uh, accurate free agent, uh, big free agent deal that they uh, handed out during that time. Like Ben Gordon was a shell of himself almost from day one. Like that guy yeah. that, that lit up the Celtics for the Bulls in the playoffs. And he, he came to Detroit and it was like, it, it was almost like Bison Daly all over again where he just didn't want to play a lot of nights. And, yeah, he and, was bad. Yep, and, and Josh Smith was almost... I think, I still think uh, Ben Gordon is was a less productive signing than Josh Smith because at least Josh Smith tried. Oh, wow. I, no, I, oh, I, I don't know. At least Josh Smith, like he gave That's you, his, he gave no, no, he. No, I seriously think that Josh Smith like gave you what he had. It just wasn't very good. Oh, like, to say the least. Yeah, like he would fill up a box score almost every night, but he would do it on like three for twenty shooting, and he'd miss half his free throws, <laughs> and he'd airball a two three pointers. 
but he'd still yeah. give you a good amount of you know blocks, steals, assists. But he was just the one of the worst, one of the least efficient shooters I've ever seen. He was horrible. Um, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, but I, I mean, so, with yeah. The, um, yeah, the, the the problem with the uh, one one last thing to note about those those Grand Hill teams, uh, it, it really starts from the top. It's the the mismanagement, and that's I think where the real parallel is between those teams and the twenty tens teams. Is Grand Hill had four head coaches and three GMs in six seasons. Like, Not that, ideal. No. No, that, that's terrible. That's awful. And I, and I compare that to like the Isaiah Thomas era where, yeah, he had, he went through, you know, a few coaches and a, he only had one GM and he had, he had another GM towards the end of his uh, career. But during that, that playoff run, that nine year playoff run, he had in Detroit, one head coach, one GM, one voice the entire time. So one star player, same star player, same head coach, same GM, same voice, same direction the entire time. Uh, Grant Hill's team never had a direction at all. It was just a whole lot of let's throw slop at the wall and see if it sticks, which is, I think, kind of how, you know, the 2010s were, you know, really up until recently when they hired, uh, you know, Troy Weaver and uh, kept Dwayne Casey. And it seems like we finally, for the first time in maybe 30 years, the, the this Pistons organization has a a solid uh, front office that is has a plan and is sticking to it and knows what they're doing. Definitely. So yeah, Mike, you, you noted though, that, uh, that, that Grant was one of the rare examples or back then he was really the only example of, of a player who was at his best with the Pistons. I'm just, I'd, I'd like to get to, to, you know, to get an idea from you guys. What was it like to watch Grant Hill on the court? Like what made him, as you guys have said, like the, the best forward to date who has ever put on a, a uniform for the Pistons? Oh, he, I mean, he could do so many, he could handle, uh, which was kind of, you know, a little different for forwards at that time. I mean, you know, the NBA was such a different world. It was the bigs were not like, you know, shooting threes and, and doing a lot of things that they do now. They were, they were bigs, you know, they, they were there to uh, rebound. They were there to, to kind of, to, to, to dunk the ball and, and do, do basically, you know, block shots. They were there to just be there. And, and Grant Hill, you know, while he's not as, uh, as big as, you know, a, a lot of other forwards, he's, he, he could, he could, he was a playmaker. I mean, he could, he could handle the ball. He could shoot the ball. He could, he could drive the ball. He could dunk. He could do everything that you, you could, you could think of. I mean, and he did it with flash and flair. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it was, it was, it was never boring. You know, you go back and watch some of these highlights and you go, well, geez, I mean, like Grant Hill, could probably play in in today's era I, like you know i don't know if i could say the same for a lot of the, his teammates i don't think they that it would work out but i but i think that grant could dominate in this era i think he's uh, jesus i'm almost gonna say he's he was like the the 90s version of lebron james like that's mm-hmm. but but obviously not as great as lebron but but he was like what lebron could do he was like what magic johnson could do in the 80s what lebron could do in the 2000s it was it was kind of like that all melted into to a ball. I mean, he, it was just it was it was so much fun to watch. Yeah, he was a sort of very early point forward back right. when there hadn't been very many of those. Yeah, he was I, just an excellent scorer and and just had a great ability to set up his teammates. Yeah, I mean the the, the NBA had point forwards. I mean, I, I I try to make it clear that you know Grant Hill wasn't the first by any stretch. You had oh right, yeah. Don, Don Nelson, um, you know the guy who really came up with the idea for the position. He, you know, he was in the NBA in the early eighties or the, I should say the late seventies. Like we had part-time power forwards to begin with like Paul Pressey or say Scotty Pippen with the Bulls. 
but we had not had someone before Grant Hill that was a forward that played point guard almost full time. And uh, Doug Collins, then that was his idea more than anything because he had his son played with Doug Collins at Duke in Grant's senior year, and he had and Shushevsky played essentially played Grant Hill at point guard that whole season, and he almost won a national championship with Grant Hill and you know a bunch of guys, and he, that that was his idea, especially because the Pistons really didn't have a pure point guard. You know they had Allen Houston, they had Joe Dumars, Lindsey Hunter. Um, None of them were really capable of being a starting NBA point. Uh, so he just plugged Grant Hill in there, and it was a, a major success. I mean, think about it. Grant Hill, it, it's not the triple doubles that impresses me about, you know, the things that Grant Hill could. It was the fact that the Pistons played such a remarkably slow pace because they didn't have a ton of – they had Grant Hill, but they didn't have that overwhelming talent that allowed them to, you know, play racehorse basketball with other teams. Uh, right. Grant Hill, that ni- that 97 team, that 54-197 team, was, I think, one of the 10 slowest-paced teams in NBA history, you know, in post-shot clock. Like, they played that. must have been that. hard to watch. <laughs> Honestly, it wasn't. Uh, because oh, it wasn't, the, huh? The, the half-court offense they ran was so friggin' gorgeous. Oh, really? Uh, yep. They had Terry Mills, one of the original stretch fives. Uh, you had Otis Thorpe, uh, and, and I'm sure Mike could say a lot about Otis Thorpe, um, uh, what been a bit of a grizzled veteran at that time. Um, <laughs> right. but you know, he had the biggest hands like of any basketball player, you know, maybe Michael Jordan or Julius Irving, you know, or Wilt might have a case, but Otis is right up there. Like his hands were that big and Grant could run a pick and roll with him and throw the ball literally anywhere. Otis would catch it with one hand and dunk it without needing to put another hand in the ball. And you had Joe Dumars who could still shoot. I already brought up Terry Mills. Like it was this, it, it was a very uh, forward-thinking offense. Like it was similar to how teams set up half-court offense today. To be honest with you, they just didn't mm-hmm. run as much. And you know, the, the funny thing was, people would look at these low scores, you know, this, these ninety-four to like eighty-eight final scores, and they would think that the Pistons were, you know, they had this great defense. No, they weren't. Like their defense was very mediocre, but their offense was so efficient, and they didn't turn the ball over. Mm-hmm. Um, almost, I think they set the lead, the league record for fewest turnovers in a season. I know it's been surpassed since then, but that's how efficient they were. So they not only right. did they not run, they didn't let anyone else run. And, just, and I, the fact that I told you all of this, this, this deliberate slow pace that they that they played, Grant Hill had ten triple doubles. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, ten triple doubles in in extremely limited possessions. And yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they averaged. I'm looking at it, they averaged 94 points a game. Yep. In that in that season. Yeah, that was that was really the like whatever you want to call it. It's like in the NHL had its uh, had its dead puck era. This was this is whatever the NBA equivalent of that was. Yeah. But if you if you look at their offensive efficiency, it was actually you know pretty high. It was just, yeah. it, it was just they 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 limited possessions. They played such a slow pace. But mm-hmm. it was really fun to watch though, at least for me, because they shot, you know, a large number of the percentages were kicking out for three pointers, which was I don't want to say it was new at the time, but it was new to me because that was the first time the Pistons really explored it. Yeah, it was rare for the stretch fives were virtually unheard of at that time too. I, I didn't know anybody. I don't know about any of this. I, I, I honestly never heard the name. Uh, oh, Terry Mills. Uh, the name? No, uh, was it? Oh. Uh, sorry, Otis Thorpe or Terry Mills? Uh, yeah. Otis, was, Otis Thorpe. Otis Thorpe. Otis, yeah. Yeah. The the problem with Otis Thorpe and and where you'll probably hear his name more often than not is that Otis Thorpe's trade to the Grizzlies 
it got themselves or got the Pistons the pick that wound up being Darko Milicic. Oh, wonderful! So yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, poor poor, poor Otis Thorpe is is always going to be kind of tied to that. Oh, so was uh, was Thorpe? So he was the center for that team or the power forward? Power forward. Oh, okay, gotcha. Uh, so yes, yeah, so you had a legitimate stretch five there. Yeah, that's that you wouldn't see uh, very often. I remember it was in 2015. We had Mike Breen gushing over Myers Leonard being a stretch five. So I, I didn't know that that guy had even existed, to be honest. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, how was it like when? So you had this team that won 54 games, and then they go and just completely flame out in the playoffs. Yeah, uh, to, to be expected. honest. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mark. No, well, I was expected. I mean, you know, they once they got to the playoffs, the Hawks were. That's the year they lost to the Hawks, right? Yep. They, the, the, they yeah, were kind of red years, hot at that yeah. time. They, they were red hot. Matembo was like, uh, you know, really coming into his own as like, the, the, I mean, he obviously was great in Denver, but he was really uh, became like, you know, this huge block uh, shot blocker in Atlanta, I would say. Um, and, and that team was, and plus they had Mookie Blaylock. They, they had a really good team over in Atlanta and it was kind of expected that the Pistons would flame out. And it really didn't matter at that time because, when you once you got to the Bulls, you were going to lose because they were just they were the un, unbeatable team. I it, I mean right. I think that's the year that they no actually it's a, it's the year after they won uh, seventy games or sixty nine games, and um and and they you know they were just the team of the nineties man. There was just nothing you know there was never any point in 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 my late nineties life when I thought the Pistons could win it all. Even though I said earlier when, when Jerry Stackhouse got off that plane that they, that they were going <laughs> to, yeah, they, they didn't even make the playoffs say here. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it, it, they were going to lose. It was expected. Okay. Well, yeah, but you didn't, you weren't necessarily sure that they were going to lose before the bulls though. Right. Well, you know, I thought at least in 97, I thought there was a chance they could, they could go deep and at least kind of make it to that Eastern conference finals area. But it, it just, you know, the Hawks were, it was their time, and 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 they were they were hot, and I there was just nothing the Pistons could do. That's rough. Yeah, the um, I mean, on a side note, the funny thing is the the people remember the Bulls winning seventy two uh, games in nineteen ninety six. They don't remember right. that they they came very close to winning seventy again the next season, and where their momentum kindly got uh, chopped down, ironically, was the the Pistons. Uh, beat the crap out of them on national TV with like a few games uh, remaining. And that was, it's funny because that team was struggling so badly. Like I can't overstate how good they were to begin that season. I think they started the season 13 and three and then ran that to 20 and four. Like they had a better start than any of the bad boy teams at the midway point. They had a better record. Like they, they were that hot. And, um, and, this, I think you can attribute probably two-thirds of it to, to them just turning on Doug Collins because chemistry was so important to that team's success. And it yeah. just slowly eroded to the point where they, they went from, you know, the second-best record in the East, then they were the third, then they were the fourth. And then in the last week of the season, they dropped from fourth to fifth, which I think cost them tremendously against Atlanta, who was a team that they had crushed be, uh, throughout that season. But it wasn't the same team anymore. And I, I remember to this day um, that game five uh, where – and they still could have won the series despite everything, you know, falling down. The whole, the whole house was burning down. They, they were still competitive because they still wanted that playoff win. And they, they – as the story famously goes, they go into halftime and I think it's tied or they're slightly ahead. And Doug Collins um, 
says something along the lines of, you know, guys, if we can just keep this close in the last few minutes, I will find a way for us to win this. To which Otis Thorpe, you know, shouts back at him, "Are you? What are you going to do? Get out there and uh, put on a uniform?" Wow. And yeah, and this is it. Yeah, the, their most crucial game of the season. But that's how fractured they were, and that's that's how much uh, a disarray that was going on between uh, they and Doug Collins. And yeah, I, re- I remember how the game ended where Steve Smith, I think they were down by a point with a minute left, and Steve Smith throws this absolute garbage. He hadn't hit a shot the entire second half. Throws this absolute garbage from the corner to beat the shot clock that switches through. And I, I can remember, you know, 15-year-old me is just like, it, I was face palming with like two hands, and if I had a third hand, I would be doing the same. Like, it was just like, Oh, this is this is going to be how it ends, huh? Like, you know, Steve Smith hitting a, a shot he had no business hitting and doing a little shimmy, like. But that right. was just—it seemed like it was faded. Uh, that season was faded to end that way and just disaster. But yeah, like, Bummer. yeah, just to summarize what Peyton said, you know, we even though the Pistons, I think, clearly had the better team because Grant Hill was better than any two guys Atlanta had, Atlanta had on their team. Uh, it was it felt like they they were they were going to lose. You know, that, that 97 Bulls team that won 69 games, I was just going <laughs> to talk a little bit about um, the Toronto Raptors beating them that year. I, it was like the biggest upset that anybody had ever seen. They were like uh, a year off of expansion. And uh, Stoudemire, Damon Stoudemire, rookie of the year that year, put up 31. You remember that game, Keith? That was a big deal. They they actually beat them twice, I think. They beat them. The, no, the, they were... They yeah, were what I'm saying is the Raptors beat them in 96 and 97, I'm pretty sure. Wow. They, they beat them during their 72-win season. I'm almost certain of it. I could be wrong. I'll look it up. But I'm pretty sure they beat – I know they beat them in 97, like you said. But I think that was yeah. almost like a theme for them, for the expansion Raptors. I'm pretty sure Isaiah threw in like some kind of an uh, uh, illegal bonus if, if they could beat Michael Jordan. Because they did, they, they saved their absolute best for for when the Bulls came to Toronto. It was it was kind of funny to watch. So I want to ask this: What was it like to be a Pistons, like the hardcore Pistons fans, during the era of Michael Jordan, when it seems like basically if he was playing, the Bulls were going to win a championship? And how does that figure in for you guys in, in terms of the discussion of who's the greatest of all time between Michael Jordan and LeBron James? As you guys have been around for both of these, <laughs> I. Uh... You know, it it was you would think that we would. I mean, I don't. Know, I can't speak for Keith, but you would think that like we would hate Michael Jordan. That we would hate every time that he would come to town. But like, it was Michael Jordan. It, it was it, it was a show. I mean, it was like you had to be there. You knew the, the Pistons were more than likely going to lose, and it didn't matter because it, it, we knew we we were witnessing. We knew that we were seeing the greatest player of all time. I mean, I had Michael Jordan posters on my wall. I'm supposed to hate the Bulls, but. Uh, and everything that's in Chicago, but you know, I I don't know. I I mean, it was just incredible to to see him play, and you know, especially um, you know the big rivalry that the Bulls and the Pistons had, and and unfortunately, you know, I kind of we you know I'm not old enough to remember that that big rivalry that was in the late '80s, early '90s. So by the time that you know I really got into basketball, we were kind of just watching Michael you know, uh, just dominate the Pistons. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was just something that you had to see. And it's much like LeBron James, you know, you had to be there. It, it's, you had, it's something that you had to see. I, I, I still think that Michael Jordan is the greatest player of all time. And there is no LeBron James without Michael Jordan because 
Michael Jordan just opened so much doors for LeBron James, not just in a, in a, in a, um, you know, on court fashion, but in terms of being a superstar, I mean, Michael Jordan was like the NBA's first mega star magic and, and bird were, were, were certainly kind of, you know, the, the guys that, that put the league on the map in terms of, uh, of getting it to be a, a sport that everybody watched because before magic and bird, like the NBA were, you know, like pre-taped games that they would show later on at night. And, you know, like the games had already happened and, and, and everybody, you know, knew like the, the final score, you know, somebody would, you, your friend would call you from Boston, like, Hey, the, the Celtics, they won like three hours ago. And, you know, it, it, nobody cared about the NBA, uh, but, but Jordan took it to this point where it was like, here's a guy that's like in McDonald's commercials. He's in movies, he's in rap lyrics. He's like, Everybody knows who Michael Jordan is, right? And I don't think that LeBron James gets half of that if if there is no Michael Jordan. And, and, and in terms of playing, you know, it's it's such a hard conversation to have because the eras are so different. And and Michael played in a much more physical era, whereas LeBron, I think you could make an argument that he plays in a more talented area. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of guys that even you know the the eleventh man on on teams can can get hot these days. I just don't know if, if that's something that was really happening uh, back in the, in the nineties. Uh, you know, I'll let you speak on it, Keith. No, more along the lines of what, what he just said. Um, like if someone's asked me who would win between, you know, Jordan's teams or LeBron's teams, or I'll even throw Steph Curry's teams in there. Cause that's gets brought up. Well, hey, well what set of rules are we playing by? Cause yeah. you, you know, in the, in the 1990s, you, you didn't, you couldn't, you weren't allowed to hide anybody behind his own defense. Like people try to make the argument that you could play zones back then. No, you could trap back then. You, you, it, yes, that's a type of a zone, but it has to be aggressively. Two guys had to be going to the ball at all times. You couldn't just play a passive zone, you know, and wait for the offense to come to you like teams can do today to cut off dribble penetration. Like Jordan was great for at dominating his era uh, and LeBron has certainly mastered dominating his. Do, do I think that Jordan had more of an effect on a on a basketball game at the highest level than LeBron did? Yeah, but I look. That's my opinion, and it may very well be colored by the fact that I grew up watching Michael Jordan, and I, I didn't like Michael Jordan at the time because I was a Pistons fan. But it, it's kind of one of those things where you don't appreciate what you have until you don't have it anymore. Like I, I didn't really appreciate Jordan for what he could do on a court until he was gone, or at least until the, the rivalry was gone. And then I could try to look at it more objectively. Uh, same thing with Kobe Bryant. Uh, I didn't really like him as a player um, until after he, again, maybe not even after he retired, but after he was no longer, you know, relevant at the top of the totem pole. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I kind of feel like I'll feel that way about LeBron, like LeBron right now, like everyone brings up like the you know the killer instinct like the fact that Jordan was 6 and 0 in the finals and that Jordan would you know he was obsessed with winning and losing and even though he had so many other commercial ventures like when he stepped on the court um you you knew you were going to get you know Jordan's maximum effort and with LeBron it's like he he it always seems like he has more than one thing going on like he has other interests like it, you who could never not call him a winner he obviously is but you all you get the feeling like his, his attention is never one thousand percent on you know winning this specific game, which is 
you know, to someone that grew up in the nineties, you, you, you're kind of put off by that, but at the same time, it's a new era. And I understand that, you know, how I remember the game isn't how it is now. And, you know, I, I need to accept that. And yeah, I look Jordan, uh, someone, someone that would have a good knowledge of both the situations that both guys were in, uh, said to me, um, Jordan is probably the best player still, but LeBron has had to put up with a lot more crap than Jordan ever did. Like Jordan has more, you know, quote unquote, uh, haters, you know, than, you know, J- Jordan was very much celebrated outside of Detroit, maybe, you know, Cleveland, like even as he was kicking your ass, like, you know, the, the, the even the home fans were, you know, in awe of what they were watching. LeBron, you get some of that, but not nearly as much. You you get as many people trying to tear LeBron down as you see trying to build him up, which is, I, I think, kind of a, you know, a side note that I won't get into. It's kind of like the, the downside of the, the social media system that we're in right now. It's just, you know, as one, uh, as one side of fans is obsessed with, you know, creating a pedestal for LeBron, you have another side that's the polar opposite that feels like they need to be just as loud in, in tearing LeBron down which I, I, I don't think is necessarily fair. I, I, I kind of want to, and I don't want to like beat this topic to death or anything, but I kind of want to like just kind of delve into the idea of like, I think it's two different things. I, I think for LeBron, the player power empowerment era, I think it kind of hurts him because when when people like my age and geez, I guess we're old heads now because <laughs> we're, we're talking about the, the good old days or whatever. But right. for, for people like me, you know, and, and I'm all for the empo- player empowerment era. I mentioned it on our last episode. Like, I, I'm cool with it. Players should be able to play where they want to play. But at the same time, you look at LeBron and it's hard not to look at him like, uh, you know, I don't remember Jordan being, you know, trying to be the GM of the Bulls, you know, like it, like, Jordan, I don't remember a time and maybe it happened. And I, but may, I don't remember a time when Jordan was like, oh, we got to get my guys here. We got to get my friends here. And and I don't remember a time when Jordan's agency almost ruled over the NBA as it does now, like as as LeBron's you know agency does. Um, I can't remember the the name of it at this at this moment. But and then I think the other thing for LeBron and and I I think I think you got to go back to like when he was in high school and everybody you know the the like big media the national media where it's like really shoving LeBron down, down your throat. And, 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 you know, and obviously for good reason, like he's an amazing basketball player. He's an amazing high school basketball player, but, but so was Kobe Bryant. So was Kevin Garnett, but we weren't watching those games on ESPN. And we were being told that LeBron James is like the next Michael Jordan. He's the next great thing. Like you're being told over and over again. And I think that triggered a lot of people in the sense that like, I need to go against the grain here because it's almost as if, um, I think it's just a mental thing. And I, it's like, it's, it's as if the, this new school is, is attacking my old school. And like, I don't know how to feel about it because now I'm being told that whatever I felt growing up about Michael Jordan being the greatest player of all time may not be true. And now I'm constantly being told that this person is surpassing what I always expected to be the greatest thing that would never be surpassed. So I, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to answer that question for anybody because I think it's all based on the era. You know, my era is always going to say Michael Jordan. Your era, Mike, uh, is probably always going to say LeBron. Mm. And and the next era, when when whoever that next guy is, you know, is always going to say somebody else. Maybe they'll say it's Luca. Maybe they'll say it's Cade. I don't know. Um, 
we'll see. Uh, hopefully. Hopefully, <laughs> sure, right? Yeah. Sure, that's what we're all hoping for. Right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but I, I, I liked hearing what you said about, about Jordan, though, in terms of in terms that it was still exciting to see him, even as a Pistons fan, when, when Pistons fans are really just supposed to hate the guy. I mean, I, I've seen LeBron play in person. And actually, the first playoff game I ever went to, uh, p- first Pistons playoff game I ever went to, of course, there haven't been a ton of them since then, but uh, was game five, I believe, at the Palace in 2006 against the Cavaliers and the Pistons lost. And, and then they won the next two games. And, but yeah, I can only imagine what it must have been like to watch Michael Jordan in person. Yeah, it was yeah, I one mean, of those. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. it would be- it, it was kind of like watching the Grim Reaper, like walk on it. And, and, and I'm, I'm coming from the, no, I, and the thing is I'm coming from the perspective of the bad boys beat the crap out of Michael Jordan's teams. You know, they, they yeah. beat them three out Literally. of four. Yeah. They beat them three out of four. They were, they were, they were just better, but you know, watching Jordan walk onto the floor, it was like the inevitable. Like if, if he had it going that night, there was nothing he could really do to disrupt him, you know, other than, you know, send three guys at him and, and hope he's in a passive mo- enough mood to move the ball that day. Like it, it, it was, was like Thanos. Yeah, it, 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 was, it was. Yeah, it was kind of like how Kobe Bryant was, but better. Uh, I, if you're a Kobe fan, I'm sorry if you don't like hearing that, but Jordan was pretty much better than every. He he. Jordan and Kobe were very similar to each other, but outside of maybe three point shooting, like range uh, shooting. Jordan was a little bit better at all of it, which was fine. I mean, he was really, really close. Kobe uh, carved out a great legacy for himself, but that was... Absolutely. Yeah, if Jordan wanted to take over a game, it was almost like there was nothing you could do about it. Like, you you saw him, you know, come out in that number 23 jersey and like, God, I, I hope he doesn't have it today because there's nothing we can really do about it if he does. Like, it was that kind of... Like he said, like, like Peyton said, it was inevitable. Like... <laughs> you, you, you could not stop like it was that kind of like fear even as like a, a little kid like a fan watching from the stands like it was fear looking at him um because he was that much better than everybody else on the court it, re- it reminded me of like this little and, and here's a little personal story when i was in high school i was a wrestler and i had to face the best guy in the state his name was lee v davis and like <laughs> everybody yeah, everybody's like, dude, you're going to lose. And I'm like, yeah, I know I'm going to lose. And everybody showed up, though, to like watch it happen. And and that was like, that was what it felt like when Michael Jordan was coming out. It was like watching Levy Davis come to the mat. It's like, I'm going to lose, but like, it's going to be a show. Everyone's going to be here to see it. And, uh, you know, that's what it always makes me think of. Yeah, the only player that that's that's funny story. Yeah, the only player it makes me think of these days because I don't, I don't think LeBron has, has ever quite been like that like you said different eras a different different ability in terms of how you can play on defense and so on and so forth but the only player comes to mind like that for me today is Kevin Durant where with every with every player every other player in the NBA you know you do your best you guard him and you just hope that he misses with Durant you do your best and you guard him and you understand that sometimes it's just not going to matter at all and you just hope he's having a bad night but yeah uh, I mean yeah. it from a certain you know standpoint, because Jordan had a million ways that he could do that post fade, he could slash to the rim all day and, and collect fouls or just dunk on you. It, with KD, it's it's pretty much you know is his jumper falling today or not? But you're you're absolutely right. It, it because of the unblockable nature of his shot, it is a similar feeling. You're absolutely right. Where if he if he has it going, I, I think about that Milwaukee series that he had um, last oh, last year. Yeah, where he almost yeah. beat the future the eventual champs pretty much by himself 
And it was, yeah, were, were they just every, they, they pretty much had to wait and hope that he ran out of gas. Yeah, definitely. Like I remember after that, they beat the Clippers, the Warriors beat the Clippers. I think this was 2019. Yeah, it was 2019. Definitely. I guess Tobias Harris was no longer on the team. He'd been traded to Philly. So they had Patrick Beverly and Lou Williams up at a press conference after the game. And somebody asked, which is, let's be honest, not a very smart question, which is, uh, you know, basically, did you guys do everything you could to stop Kevin Durant? And, <laughs> and, and Patrick Beverly, being who he is, of course, wasn't too kindly disposed toward that. He's like, what do you think? You know, what do you think? Like, it's Kevin Durant. You know, it's Kevin Durant. And, uh, and Lou Williams speaks up. And he's like, I promise you we tried. <laughs> but there's just nothing you can do. Uh, all right, so uh, let's uh, let's finish this off by uh, by playing a little game. It's called uh, least favorite Pistons memory and most favorite Pistons memory. So uh, just for the sake of ending on a happier note, why don't we go with least favorite first? So uh, Peyton, what's yours? Oh, the two thousand five uh, Pistons Spurs Finals. Um, Robert oh, Ory yeah. hitting that three, and just there was just it. it I just remember coming into that game and Matchbox 20's song was like the, this is how a heart breaks was like the, the theme, <laughs> oh, right. was like the theme of the series. And like, I just, that every time I hear that song, I, I cringe because like, it always reminds me of, of that night and Robert Horry hitting that three and, and the Pistons losing that series. And it just, that that to me is despite going through years of uh, you know futility in the '90s and and obviously we had a lot of problems since since '09 and or '08. It, um, but you know we're we're in this moment where it's like the Pistons are one of the best teams in the league and it's awesome and and we're back in the finals and maybe we could go and and we could we could you know pull it back to back again and how great would that be. And I always kind of look at that that moment, you know, that series and losing that series is kind of the beginning of the end, uh, and and it really sort of went towards you know what kind of what we've gone through for the last you know fifteen years or so until until now, and yeah, that's that's a hard one to think about. Well, you got to answer the question: Do you blame do you, do you blame Sheet at all for any of that? Yeah, man, I don't know where he was on that, but you, you've got to get on Robert Ory. I mean, how many times? We've seen it with Houston. We saw it with LA. Like this is what Big Shot Bob does. Like I just, I don't know. I I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> Back then, I didn't know too much about Robert Horry, but when I did know about him, yes, my like really backdated anger at Rashid Wallace grew quite a bit because it's like <laughs> yeah. this is one. This is one of the great. He didn't score many points. I mean, uh, you know, the the guy averaged like eight points per game in the playoffs, but he's one of the great clutch shooters of all time in the post. Right. He's an assassin. And when you have a guy like that in a moment like that, that's built for Robert Ory, you, you got to get on that guy and she'd, she'd man. He just blew it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Keith, what do you, what would come to you? What's your, uh, your darkest piston memory? And I looked it up by the way, seven rings for Robert Ory. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of candidates um, that I, I've been going over for the last several minutes. I mean, there's the, the Steve Smith uh, prayer that I just brought up earlier, '97, that cost them the '97 series. Um, there's, you know, them walking off the court and knowing that it was that was over uh, in '91 against the Bulls. Mm-hmm. Not, not that I disapproved of them walking off the court because that was entirely defensible if you take it in context. 
but it was just like the end of an era uh, type deal. And just the, the, the very last um, Pistons game that I attended, uh, you know, when, before I moved out of Michigan was that 2008 uh, game six against Boston where they had control. It looked like they were going to push it to a game seven and then they kind of collapsed in the fourth and that it had the exact same feeling for me. But I'm going to push all of those aside, and I am going to bring up uh, Game 2 of the uh, 2000 first-round series uh, against the Miami Heat. And this this is going to tail on to what I said before uh, when I was talking about the Teal era and the uh, how the 90s ended. It, Grant, Hill, it looked, Grant Hill was having the best season of his career. He really was. And uh, originally it was, you know, he had sustained a back uh, – I think a back injury and then it was his foot and then his foot, they, they just thought it was a, a bone bruise or a sprained ankle. And they, they took MRIs of it frequently and it, but MRIs really only show a uh, soft tissue. They didn't ever took an X-ray. So they never, and this is just mind blowing that they didn't do this uh, because it was actually his, his, the, uh, his foot, his left foot was, was slowly breaking down and they, they didn't know about it. And to, they, they, they sat him and they figured, okay, it's just a, a bone bruise or a sprained ankle or whatever. You know, he'll be fine for the playoffs. And then game one of the playoffs starts and he's up against Jamal Mashburn. A good player, very good player. Grant owned Jamal Mashburn um, pretty much through the entirety of his Pistons career. And Jamal mm-hmm. Mashburn was going right by him like he was a stop sign. Like it was just, just like, like he, like he, was just standing in quicksand. Like he made, he was making Grant Hill look slow. And it, it was, it was like, it, you were wondering what's going on. Like, why is, why is Grant suddenly struggling, you know, with this slow Miami Heat team that should be a perfect matchup for him. And, you know, they, they, they get blown out. And then the second game, uh, game two, uh, this is the game that I'm talking about. And it, it gets worse. And Grant Hill's, I, I, Something happened. I think he went for a rebound, uh, or he was trying to deflect a pass where he landed on that foot, and his his foot just gave out. Like there was, it, like it popped, like it was a complete like fracture of the foot. And he and the the amazing, the, what what really blows my mind is he still tried to keep playing, and he was limping like not Isaiah Thomas in the finals limping where it was just like he was moving fast, but he was dragging one ankle. No, no, no. like he was like moving like he had a wooden leg. Like it, it was really, really bad. Like he was just standing in one spot on offense and, you know, hoping to, you know, hoping the defense would just leave him like kind of bad. And he was in so much pain. You could see it on his face. And after a, a few minutes, you know, they, they finally decided to pull the plug because it was like watching a boxer, right. That had taken way too many hits and you're just, you're waiting for the trainer to throw in the flag. Like he's really, really hurt. This isn't going to get better. And that was one of the more saddest, that was probably the saddest I've ever felt as a Pistons fan. Not that I believed it was over. I didn't think that that incident would cause him to leave the team necessarily, but it was just, you know, watching someone that, you know, I spent a lot of my formative years, you know, rooting for, watching him grow, you know, and this was the stage that it looked like he had a chance to really advance his career and just to see it end that way. And that was the last time he put on a Pistons uniform. You know, it was that's uh, my last memory is of him, you know, needing help limping to the bench. That must have hurt. Uh, yeah, I, I still think about it. It's it, it, And Grant has never watched that game to this day. It's kind of, and I, I, 
I, I don't blame him. Because he, <laughs> it, yeah. it's just, it's such a sad thing to watch. Yeah, that's rough. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, all right. So on to most favorite, warmest piston memory. Yeah. What well, keep on you? Uh, why don't you start us off with this? Okay. So uh, I, I'm going to cheat a little bit because I was still very young when this was going on, but it was just so, I, I remember the joy of it all. And, and I, I can look back on it and, and feel it again at, at any point in my life is game six of the 88 Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics. Huh? Yeah. To where yeah. Yeah, they finally very, won. Yeah, after years and after being a doormat really for, for 30 some years for the league, like they were essentially the Clippers before the Clippers, like they were that bad. And for yeah. them to take this, you know, seven, eight, nine year journey with Isaiah Thomas to get to this point and to take down you know, the league's darling, the Boston Celtics on their way to the finals. And if you look at the game, like it was just, I've never seen so much joy on an NBA floor just for an entire building. Like they all rushed the floor. Um, You know, people are hoisting each other up on their shoulders. It was just, just this huge mega celebration that I don't think we'll ever see again because I don't think we'll ever see an NBA crowd allowed to rush the floor after after a playoff series ends but <laughs> that would be something yeah but i even to this day i can go back and 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 watch that game and it just brings a tremendous amount of, of joy to me just the, the happiness and, and you can even if uh it you're not looking at it from experience uh you can look on the the faces of each of the pistons like the the amount of relief and the joy like they'd worked so hard for this moment and they're finally achieving it and it was just, I don't know, it, it was almost like a high school game, as, as weird as that analogy is, where everyone is just over, it's just a overjoyed crowd. And, and, and that was a huge, it was like 40, it was like something double the size of LCA, just the crowd. It's like 40 some thousand people that came to see that game. It, it, it's something that I will always remember, like as a moment that's special to me as a Pistons fan. Fantastic. Yeah, I can't claim to remember that one. Uh, all right, Mike. Why don't you close us out here with yours? All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat a little bit. I'm gonna do two, but the for the yeah, big absolutely. one. The big one is it's 2004. It's winning that championship because you know after years, all I had known really, you know, when I, when the Pistons won their first two championships, I was I was pretty young. I was like four or five years old. I don't really remember any of that happening. I remember you know people in the house being happy and stuff, but like that doesn't. You know, it doesn't really translate to what it's like to actually watch your team do it. And it felt like, you know, that 2004 team, you know, going back and, and, you know, they make the Eastern Conference Finals in 2003. They lose out. And you're thinking, you know, this is what this is what this team's going to be. Like, at best, they're going to be a conference finals team. And you you never like, I don't remember at any point in 2004 thinking, okay, well, this is a team that could win the finals. Like obviously they went on that streak where they were holding teams to, um, you know, what was it? Under 70 points. And, uh, and, and they were defensive, like a defensively, a really great team. And, but you still like they're in the back of my mind, I'm still like, well, this is gonna be a great team, but they're probably going to fizzle out in the playoffs, you know, and then you get to the playoffs and so many big things are happening. Chauncey makes that, that big shot against the Nets, uh, Tayshawn with the, you know, maybe the greatest block of all time. And then they, they get to the finals and it's like, you know, oh my gosh, here we go. This Lakers team, it's Kobe Bryant, it's, it's Shaq, it's Carl Malone, Gary Payton. And it was like, you know, 
how are we going to beat this team? You know, this is like the, the, the monsters from space jam. It was like, it was like, this is the team, the, a dream team that somebody put together. And I remember, you know, there was this one guy, I can't remember who it was, but he said Lakers in four because the Pistons can't score. And, and it just felt like we weren't going to win that series. And then to go out there and, and do a five game sweep. And I just remember where I was when it happened. You know, I was at a, a friend's house with a bunch of other people and we're just, you know, just going just crazy that night. And um, it is a good thing. I wasn't 21. Cause I probably would have done some, <laughs> uh, some bad things that night, but like uh, it was just, it, it was just an amazing moment. And, right. and I'll always look back on it fondly. And, uh, the other one is, you know, I'm 36 years old. I've been watching the Detroit Pistons my entire life. Mm-hmm. And the moment that the Pistons won the draft lottery. To oh, get, that was great. <laughs> it was, I don't think that, I mean, that's like, I was running around the house screaming. Like, I mean, like just pure joy. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a feeling I had never felt and thought I never would feel. And I knew even at that moment, it was like, we're going to get Kate Cunningham. And like, this guy's going to change the face of the Pistons. And while none of that's truly happened quite yet, uh, he dude has shown that he is, he could, you know, he could very easily be a top five player in the league at some point in his life. And to have a guy like that on our team, on our team, um, it's just, it's, it's, it's something I haven't felt since Grant Hill. And, and um, you know, it just makes me really happy to think about that, that moment winning that lottery, just never thought it would happen. That was a fantastic moment. Absolutely. Like, I, I have very fond memories of that day. I was, uh, I was just like, you know what? I woke up that day. I was like, I am 100% ready and anticipating, actually, something going right for the business today. Right. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, just didn't, I just didn't think it was going to happen. And, and uh, I don't know. But it did. It was a great moment. Yeah. Can, can, I, can I add one quick story? That Absolutely. My, my favorite moment at a Pistons game? Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so th- this one, and this one's personal to me. That's why I bring it up. Uh, all right, so a, a buddy of mine, um, we were washing cars um, uh, for this guy in his garage, like like a professional garage. Uh, he asked us to do uh, to wash his cars for all the uh, cars in the garage for a day, and you know, in exchange, he said he had you know tickets to a, a piston suite that night that he'd take us along with him, and so we went, and it was. Uh, the, the, this was back in November. Uh, this is the early 95, 96 season, like one of the first month or two of uh, Doug Collins coaching career. And they were playing the Houston Rockets who were the defending champions at the time. And, you know, I was, you know, 13, I think I was 13 years old. And, you know, the, the, the guy that brought us to the game was having a basketball conversation with me about history, because of course, what else would I talk about? And he was telling me that, you know, Elijah one was the greatest thing since sliced bread. He'd go down as the greatest center of all time. You know, he might go out, go down as the greatest player of all time. He may have been from Houston. I don't remember. Uh, but, you know, the, the Pistons were winning at the time. So I, I, I said to him, you know, I started shooting my mouth off. Um, you know, so if he's so great, how come the, uh, the Rockets aren't winning, even winning this game? He says, okay, so you want to bet me $50 that uh, <laughs> you want to bet me $50 that the Rockets are going to win this game? And I'm like, sure, why not? Because, you know, I'm 13. I have no concept of money. So, and I'm thinking the Pistons are up comfortably at this point. And then the fourth quarter happens and the Rockets start coming back. And the Rockets then take the lead. <laughs> and I, I'm now realizing that I do not have $50 in my pocket right now. 
so I'm kind of in a bind. <laughs> and um, uh, the Rockets, uh, I think, had a one-point lead. Uh, I, th- I think it may have been some Clyde Drexler free throws, I think, uh, that pulled them ahead with, I want to say, three or four seconds left. And the Pistons call a timeout. And all that's going through my mind is, what am I going to do if <laughs> – what, what am I? Gonna, yeah, what I, I I'm 13 years old. I do not have 50 dollars in my pocket for that to, to give this guy. Right. And they they come out of the timeout, and Terry Mills, God bless him, takes I think one one dribble, a step back three with Elijah Wan in his jersey, and swishes it at the buzzer, and in the piston, and that that. I still remember it was a, it was this amazing combination of both relief and excitement. Like I nearly, I, I nearly jumped out of like the skybox that we were in because I was just, I had no idea where I was. I was just jumping up and down. Like, and it, half of it was, oh my god, he hit this incredible shot over over this guy's favorite player, you know, to win the game. Yeah. Like I wanted to throw it in his face. And then the other, on the other hand, it was like. I don't have to give this guy money that, that I don't actually have. It's not going to send the guy, cookies after you. <laughs> no, and that's what the guy said to me. He's like, now, before I give you this 50, did you really have $50 in your pocket to give me? I'm like, yeah. we'll never know. Now, will we? Yeah, that's the right answer. <laughs> Definitely. That's a good story. Thanks for sharing. Uh, all right. Uh, like I said, folks, this is, uh, this is Keith Trudeau and Mike Payton of Bad Boys and Beyond. You can follow them on Twitter. At Bad Boys Beyond. Uh, you can listen to them on Spotify and Apple. And thanks, fellas, for joining the show today. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So, uh, as always, if you enjoyed this episode and previous episodes, consider following uh, this show on Twitter at To The Basket Pod. Thank you for listening. Catch you in the next episode.